0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, Please keep uh, Tim and Rick in your prayers. Um, Rick is preaching at a a fellow church right in our community, Trinity Christian Church of Greater Philadelphia, fellow gospel preaching church. And Tim is uh, actually away this week for uh, just much needed rest and vacation. So keep our other pastors in prayer so you're stuck with me today. All that to say, uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. In case you might be wondering, we're not back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Today I'll be preaching a different kind of sermon. We usually focus on one particular passage, but today we'll be looking at a a series of different passages uh, focusing on one particular topic. I'll be teaching and preaching from the book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a book on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. The publisher Crossway has generously given our church 200 copies of this book. So it's our joy as pastors to highly recommend this book and its meditations on the heart of Christ. They're sitting on the book table in the alcove to your right. So I don't know if you can see that, but there's a stack of about 200 books. There's enough for every adult and youth to have one. And we wanna encourage you to come up after service, take a copy, read it, and meditate on the truth that it teaches. And may we as a church cling to Jesus even more as a result of what we learn. And may we as a church find our all in all in him, all our joy, all our life, all our satisfaction, all of our security, may it be found in him alone. So where do we begin? We're going to begin with the heart. The heart of someone, someone's heart, tells you a lot about a person. If you know someone has a kind heart, a big heart, a generous heart, a gracious heart, that probably tells you the most important thing you need to know about someone. not saying that other characteristics aren't important. They certainly are. But the heart reveals who someone truly is on the inside. The heart reveals whether they can be trusted, whether they can be your friend, whether there's there's someone you can open up your life to. And yes, if they have a good heart, but no if they have a wicked heart or evil heart, or if they're heartless. And quite often first impressions turn out to be wrong. Sometimes we thought someone had a good heart, but their actions later showed that they were heartless. Or maybe the opposite is true. Sometimes we thought someone was heartless, but later we realized their actions proved otherwise. There's one place in the Bible where Jesus tells us about his own heart, where he discloses his own heart. And even more assuring, his actions confirm his words. So let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus. Reveal your Son in fresh and powerful and convicting and just ways that we can just experience in the depths of our own soul today but we know that that only happens through the power of your spirit so send your spirit upon us fill us with your spirit open our eyes enlighten us that we might see jesus today in jesus name we pray amen well i have two main parts in the message today that are going to follow the title of the book Number one, the heart of Christ for sinners, and number two, the heart of Christ for sufferers. The heart of Christ for sinners, and the heart of Christ for sufferers. So number one, the heart of Christ for sinners. As we just read, Jesus Christ says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like I said earlier, it's the only place in Scripture that records what Jesus has to say about his own heart, and we see Two particular words I want to focus on gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Does it surprise you that Jesus describes his heart in this way? That he describes his heart as gentle and lowly? Now, if we think about the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Bible, it should surprise us. It should surprise us, but maybe it doesn't as you're sitting here this morning. Maybe it doesn't surprise you because. Maybe you think of God as like an old grandfather figure up in heaven. Sure, God created the universe a long time ago, but like a grandpa, he's older, more tired, and just simply can't be bothered. When you think of gentle and lowly, you think of an old grandfatherly figure. Or maybe it doesn't surprise you because you'd like to think of God as a God of love, not a God of judgment, a God of holiness, a God of wrath who would punish sin and send lawbreakers and sinners into hell. When you think of gentle and lowly, it means warm and fuzzy. But it should surprise us. It should surprise us because this Jesus is anything but an old grandfatherly figure. This Jesus is anything but warm and fuzzy. This Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling. This Jesus stood up to the most powerful politicians of his day and condemned them as hypocrites, as blind guides, as children of hell. This Jesus promises to come back in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead. This Jesus wields a scepter of iron and will dash the nations into pieces like pottery. And yet, this same Jesus... Is gentle and lowly. He's gentle and lowly. And that should surprise us. And you might be thinking, is that even possible? You might be thinking, how can all those things be true of one person? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, a lion who tears apart his enemies, but also the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb of God for his people. And for all who surrender their, surrender their lives to Jesus and come with humility and brokenness and repentance, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. But for all who turn away from Jesus, who turn to sin and rebellion, the Bible describes them as a consuming fire, a consuming fire. If you're not a Christian, a follower of Christ, we wanna thank you for joining us, being with us today. And We want to just encourage you, plead with you even, to come to Jesus today, to surrender your life to Him. Come to Jesus for life, for forgiveness, for everlasting joy, for He is gentle and lowly in heart. He welcomes all. Don't harden your heart against Him. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't perish in your sins. Don't plunge into eternal destruction. In church for those of us who are in christ who have surrendered all to follow him jesus wants to give us a fresh reminder new glimpses into the deepest recesses of his heart who he is for us so let's dive into the heart of christ for sinners and in this first part i'm going to focus on two aspects so much could be said about the heart of christ for sinners but time will only allow for two aspects number one friend of sinners and number two, high priest of sinners. So I'm going to zero in on just two aspects, friend of sinners and high priest of sinners. So Jesus as friend of sinners, Luke chapter seven, verse 34, we read that the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Dane Ortland writes, time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is by his enemy's testimony. This is, this is what the enemies of Jesus are calling him, The enemies call him the friend of sinners. So what does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Ortland puts it this way, in Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. A person who would always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. And think about the friends that God has placed into your own life. Maybe it's your spouse, a childhood friend, Maybe it's an accountability partner or a fellow brother or sister in the Lord here in our church. What a good gift friends are. They're our blessing. They're a good gift. And yet, how imperfect our friendships are. How good and yet how imperfect. How many of us have lost friends or had to remove ourselves from counterproductive friendships? Despite our best intentions and efforts, that friendship just didn't work out. I can think of two mutual friends of mine who really aren't friends any longer with each other because of personality and other conflicts. Ortland points out these limitations. He writes, every human friend has a limit. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up but what if there was a friend who had no limit, no ceiling on what he would put up with and still want to be with you? Jesus prayed in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me, may be with me where I am. My three-year-old daughter, Alexa, wants to be with me wherever I am. She's at the age where she just wants to be with daddy. I'm going to the office, she says, I want to come. I'm taking out the trash, I want to come. I'm going to the bathroom, I want to come. She's with me so much that Roberto Irias, our facilities manager here, refers to her as my bodyguard. And as you can see, my bodyguard isn't here with me, she's in Promise Kingdom, in children's ministry right now. But her desire to be with daddy, in some small way, is a dim reflection of our friendship with jesus christ jesus never tires being with us his desire his prayer, prayer is that they may also be where i am jesus just wants to come just wants to come he just wants to be with you human friendships have a limit there's a limit to how real how raw how transparent you can be but not with jesus it's the exact opposite our sins our brokenness Our secrets, things that would repel others away from us, they actually attract Jesus. He's not repelled. He's not shocked by our sins and secrets. So bring your sins, bring your secrets, bring your brokenness to Jesus. He's the friend who receives you as you are, but doesn't leave you as you are. He is a friend at all times and all seasons, a friend in court a friend in heaven, a friend at the right hand of God, a friend who just wants to be with you wherever you are. He's a friend who says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's from John chapter 6, verse 37. And the Greek used in that verse is an emphatic negative. It literally reads, I will not not cast out. I will not, not cast out. It's a negative piled on top of a negative to show that Jesus will never, will never, ever, ever cast out anyone who comes to him. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress wrote extensively on this verse. And I'll just paraphrase and modernize Bunyan as I quote this, but I am a hard hearted sinner. You say, I will never cast out says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light and against mercy, you say. I will never cast out, says Christ. That's what Jesus says. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No sin. No backsliding, no rebellion, no guilt is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. Jesus welcomes you, welcomes me and all of us through the doorway of humility and repentance, so give up your sin and come to Jesus either for the first time or the 1,000th time, I and mean, He is a friend who has no limit to His love. Having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them until the end, John 13:1. Jesus held nothing back from his friends. There's no greater love than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. And he came, he bled, he died for you, for me. He held nothing back. He laid it all down, even to the point point of death, death on a cross. So number one, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And number two, high priest of sinners, high priest of sinners. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, our high priest, He understands the struggles we face, the temptations to give in, the temptation to give in to that lustful desire. To give in to that greed, that jealousy, that selfish ambition. Jesus felt the full force of every temptation we have ever felt because he never gave in. He never gave in, not even once. The theologian C.S. Lewis made this point by speaking of a man walking against a wind. Imagine a man walking, maybe it's a hurricane, He's walking against the wind. The man is straining, moving forward against winds that would knock him down, blow him down, feeling the full force of that wind. But once that wind of temptation gets strong enough, he lies down, giving in. By lying down and giving in, he doesn't know what it'd be like 10 minutes later if he didn't lie down and give in. But Jesus, he never lay down. Jesus endured all our temptations and testings to the full, to the maximum extent without even giving in for a single moment. Therefore, he knows temptation better than any of us. Only he truly knows the cost of saying no and coming under the strongest temptations. So he's our high priest who understands us and he doesn't do this reluctantly but joyfully, joyfully, not a reluctant high priest, but a joyful one. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, he he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus went to the cross as our high priest, not presenting an animal, not presenting a food sacrifice, but presenting himself as that sacrifice that would take away our sins. And He doesn't do it grudgingly, not without complaining, not against His will. It brought Him joy to redeem us and to serve us. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Ortland writes, in the same way that a loving husband gets more relief and comfort in his wife's healing than his own, Christ brings into Himself more comfort when He sees our sins being placed under His own blood. When I've been sick and I get better, I usually move on pretty quickly. I don't think too much of it. But when my wife gets sick and gets better, there's a, there's a relief. There's a joy that I experience because I care deeply for her. So yes, as Christians, as blood-bought saints, we experience joy that our sins are placed under the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But here's the exciting news of the gospel. Jesus has even more joy, even more joy that our sins are placed under his blood. It's like a loving husband is happier when his wife is healed than when he is healed. It's what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. It was the father who was happier than the wayward son. The father is the one who runs and embraces his son. He lavishes his gifts on the returning son. He's not a reluctant high priest, but a joyful one. And Jesus is not a harsh high priest, but a gentle one. Not a harsh high priest, but a gentle one. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He can deal gently. The Bible speaks of different kinds of sins. The accidental sins and then the deliberate sins. Accidental sins are unintentional. They're out of ignorance. You didn't realize you were sinning. But deliberate sins are much more serious. They're intentional. They're willful and against knowledge. It's, those are the sins where we really do know better. But Jesus doesn't just deal gently with the ignorant, but with the ignorant and wayward. Those who sin because they're ignorant and don't know any better, and those who sin because they're wayward and have deliberately gone off the path and knew better. Ortland gets really specific. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that only you know about? The overdependence upon alcohol, the lost temper time and again, the shady business about your finances, the constant people-pleasing that looks to others like niceness but which you know to be fear of man, the entrenched resentment that bursts out in behind-the-back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. When we humble ourselves and come to Jesus, He deals gently with us, whether we're ignorant or wayward, for He is gentle and lowly in heart. He is gentle with us as we struggle. When you stumble once again, when you give in yet again, and when you know His heart, His heart for you, that His heart is gentle, that gives you the complete freedom to come to Him, to just turn to Him, to run to Him, to embrace Him. So we see the heart of Christ for sinners. Now we're going to look at the heart of Christ for sufferers. The heart of Christ for sufferers. Suffering is an undeniable reality. If you're not suffering, you know someone who is, or you will at some point. The problem of suffering is real. Entire religions are built upon trying to explain and address the problem of suffering buddhism was founded because one man needed answers to suffering we disagree with buddhism on the source and solution for suffering but we'd agree on this the suffering is real it's universal it affects all of us i was recently sitting with a fellow church member who had lost a spouse and carries a wound their pain is real it's real and we see the card of christ for sufferers how he responds to our difficulties, our trials, our heartaches, our brokenness, we see Jesus move toward us in our sin and suffering, not away from us. He sees our suffering and then moves with perfect compassion towards us in our time of need. Under Jewish law, if a ceremonially unclean person touched something or someone that was unclean, they would become unclean. An unclean person couldn't come near the tabernacle or temple that means other people had to keep their distance from unclean people because they wouldn't want to become unclean also but in the gospels jesus surprises us because he moves towards the unclean he moves towards the prostitutes the traitorous tax collectors he moves towards the unclean lepers the demon possessed but when he touches them he touches them he doesn't become unclean they become clean. Uncleanness doesn't infect Jesus like the rest of us. Cleanness infects them. And so Jesus moves toward us in our suffering, in our brokenness, and makes us whole. Let's think about the miracles that Jesus performs, the the healings, casting out demons, raising the dead. As Ortland points out, miracles are not an interruption. We can think of them as an interruption of the laws of nature in creation, but miracles aren't an interruption, but a restoration. Miracles aren't an interruption, but a restoration. We can become so used to all the brokenness around us, the death, the mourning, crying, pain, but those things are the interruption. When Jesus turns back the tide of death and mourning and crying and pain, He's restoring to creation what it was supposed to be before sin and suffering entered the good creation that God had made. What kind of suffering have you experienced or are you experiencing even now? What kind of loss? What kind of sorrow? Maybe it's the loss of friends, the loss of family. Maybe it's the loss of a job or loss of respect or loss of money. What kind of pain have you had to endure? For some, it's physical pain. Maybe it's chronic pain or or physical weakness or physical limitations. Maybe it's spiritual pain like the pain of unanswered prayer or the pain of doubting whether God is really good or whether he's for you. Well, let's consider the heart of Christ at the funeral of Lazarus in John chapter 11. When we think of the funeral of Lazarus in John chapter 11, we immediately think of that glorious resurrection. But when a narrative becomes so familiar to us, we can easily gloss over other details. We could miss the fact that Jesus didn't raise Lazarus right away. He doesn't do his thing immediately. doesn't work his miracle right away. In fact, you remember, he delayed coming to see Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And then when Lazarus died, he goes and he meets with Mary and Martha. And then he takes time to weep with them, to just be there with them. Let's think about it. He, he weeps even though he knows in just a few minutes, in just a few moments, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. But at the tomb, we see Jesus was deeply moved and the greek can also be translated indignant or angry so you could say jesus was provoked he was deeply angry and jesus was angry at death he was angry at death because of what death had stolen from creation benjamin warfield writes indistinguishable fury seizes upon jesus it is death that is the object of his wrath. His soul is held by rage. Jesus is enraged because of what death has done to his good creation. And as Orland explores the emotional life of Christ, he writes, Christ's compassion and anger rise and fall together. A compassionless, a less, Christ could never have gotten angry at injustice. It is the father who loves his daughter most whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. I love my two daughters. I couldn't imagine how angry I'd be if either one of them were mistreated. When Alexa falls down or gets hurt, she runs into daddy's arms. She's my princess. My compassion for her means if she's mistreated, I'll get angry. If I didn't care, if I didn't get angry, could you say that I loved her or had compassion for her? And in that anger, we see in Jesus, in that moment, we see the heart of Christ. We see the heart of Christ when we experience injustice, when we experience mistreatment, when we experience brokenness and pain. His compassion moves him in the deepest core of his being, in his heart, because he cares, he loves, we belong to him. And the good news of his resurrection is that His resurrection guarantees that everything wrong, everything broken in this world will be made right, either in this world or the one to come. As I wrap up our time together, I want us to just make sure that everything I've said doesn't, doesn't remain abstract, doesn't remain theoretical. Because church, we've just spent the last couple minutes looking at the heart of Christ for sinners and for sufferers. It's like a husband relating to his wife or a father to his daughter. Jesus is a friend of sinners, a high priest of sinners. And the heart of Christ isn't just some theoretical, theological knowledge to fill our minds. Church, it needs to affect our hearts. It needs to affect how we live. It's intended to be real, the heart of Christ. It's intended to be personal. It's intended to be experienced. And that only happens through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be with you. You see, church, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can't help you, can't help me. He can't comfort us. An atheist can study the Bible, can study the life of Christ, but without the Spirit breathing life, The atheist is still dead in their sins and trespasses. Think about your own life. How did you come to faith in Christ? I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, going to church and hearing Bible stories growing up, but going and hearing, that doesn't save anyone. When I was about 10 or 11, the spirit turned on the lights for me, I realized something more than Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for me. I realized something more than Jesus died for sins, that Jesus died, on, f- died for my sins, for my sins personally against a holy God, and that Jesus came to save me. And If you're a Christian, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what you've experienced as well, that Jesus died for you, for your sins, that he came to save you. And That church is the work of the Holy Spirit, joining you to Jesus Christ for the first time and then illuminating, teaching you, showing you who Jesus is over and over again, that you might cling to him. Ortland writes, the Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us. Not just heard, but Seen. Not just seen, but felt. Not just felt, but enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus, about his heart, and moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. Teresa and I occasionally watch cooking shows. We've watched a couple episodes of Master Chef and Chopped. But the thing that frustrates me to no end is that you watch these chefs prepare this amazing food. You can see it, you can hear it, but that's it. That's it. There's no way to, to taste this food, to experience it, to touch it, to smell it. What's the point of watching a cooking show? if You can't eat what they make. It's just a glorious tease. Ortland writes, the spirit turns recipe into actual taste. The spirit turns recipe into actual taste it's like the difference between reading about bike riding and then actually getting on a bike and riding that bike and the spirit moves us from the reality of theory moves us from theory to reality from doctrine to experience And so only the spirit of god the holy spirit can make the heart of christ real and felt and experienced and enjoyed for each one of us No work of the Spirit, I mean, there's no reality, no experience, no actual taste. So church, let's come to Christ. Let's come to the friend of sinners. Let's come to the high priest. Let's go to him. To whom else shall we go? For Christ alone is the way, truth, and the life. But let us come by the Spirit of the living God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me pray and let's ask for that even now. Father, we just pray that you would send your spirit, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would experience the goodness of Jesus Christ for sinners, the goodness of Jesus Christ for those who suffer and are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. God, we don't want this just to fill our minds. Lord, we want to enjoy this tomorrow morning when we wake up and we have to go back to work. We wanna enjoy this when once again, We're having the most difficult time raising our children. We want to enjoy this, God, in those relational struggles and conflicts. We want to enjoy this in our physical and emotional, spiritual pain. But we can only enjoy this, God, if you cause us to know and to, to experience and to enjoy the heart of Christ. So we pray that you would work in that way, Father. Send your spirit, pour out your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> Churches, as, as we head out this Sunday morning, please remember to pick up a copy of Gentle and Lowly. They're on the table, 200 copies. We have enough for every adult and youth. And let this book minister to your soul as it's ministered to mine. Meditate on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers and be transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And church, go out with these words from Jesus from John chapter 14, verse 27. Let me send you out with these words of Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Amen.